says, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still my soul when change and tears are past. One day, there's going to be no more tears. He's going to wipe them away. Looking forward to that day. Um, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. And that's our great hope as believers, um, is that one day we'll lay all of our burdens down and uh, all the pain is going to be gone. Uh, whether it's physical pain, whether it's emotional pain, it's all going to be in the past. It's going to be in the rearview mirror, and uh, God's going to wipe away our tears. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and stand together, um, and if you would, take your Bible and turn to uh, Mark chapter number 8, Mark chapter number 8, and uh, we're standing for the reading of God's Word out of respect and reverence for it, for the holy, precious Word of God. Mark chapter number 8, and we're going to finish chapter 8, and after today, well, there are 16 chapters in the book of Mark, we're going to be right there at the halfway point, uh, so uh, we're, we're almost to halftime here. This is the two-minute warning. Um, it's not going to be two minutes. Don't, don't get your hopes up, okay? You're like, oh, this is going to be a two-minute sermon. No, uh, you know how that goes. Uh, the two-minute drill sometimes ends up being a, a good long time. And so anyway, uh, Mark chapter number 8, though, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 34 and read through the rest of the chapter. Um, the Bible says in Mark 8, 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Lord, we thank you again for the day. Thank you for the service thus far, for the music. It's been so wonderful. Um, but now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would still our hearts and help us, Lord, to focus in on what you'd have for us today. And I pray, Lord, that as you speak to our hearts, that we would have heart that would say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. And help us, Lord, to desire and decide to be uh, true disciples of Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So in the last passage that we studied last week, uh, when uh, Peter began to rebuke the Lord and a uh, reminder of the, uh, the title last week was When God's Plan Doesn't Make Sense. And uh, just a moment before uh, the passage we just read here, uh, Jesus begins to explain to the disciples that he was going to suffer, be rejected, and that he was going to be killed. And then the three, three days later, he was going to rise again. And this was the first time that Jesus announced this. And it was shocking news for the disciples, so shocking that the Apostle Peter uh, gets up and says, wait a minute, this, this isn't going to work. Uh, we're not okay with this. So the answer, Lord, is no, we're not going to allow you to do this. And uh, he had the audacity to tell the Lord and to rebuke uh, the Lord of glory. Well, the Lord uh, rebukes him back and says, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And then in verse 34, now he turns his attention not just to his disciples, but now he turns his attention, attention to those others who were following him as well and called the people, the Bible says in verse 34, unto him with his disciples. And then he begins to explain what true discipleship really is, what a real, genuine disciple is. Uh, this week I looked up where the phrase, the real McCoy comes from. And uh, there were conflicting stories, and, and somebody even said, well, which story is the real McCoy? <laughs> uh, but 
Um, here's one that uh, was likely. It was from 1872 when inventor Elijah McCoy, he panted, patented a self-regulating machine that lubricated parts of a steam engine without the need for manual maintenance. And this allowed trains to run continuously for much longer uh, distances than ever before. Well, evidently, the invention's success spawned a plethora of poor quality imitations, some uh, wannabes, and uh, which this led to railroad personnel when they were ordering their parts said, I want the real McCoy. I don't want the imitation ones. And so as we consider here discipleship, um, Jesus here is saying, here's what the real McCoy disciple uh, has to look forward to. And, and uh, Jesus, in, in a sense, is, is kind of giving an infomercial about discipleship. And typically, uh, when, when, when someone's giving an infomercial, and all of us have seen those, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to sell all the, the qualities and all the features that this product uh, it has. And, and, uh, and then they'll often say, wait, there's more. Order in the next 10 minutes and, and we'll send you two of them. And uh, most of us have seen that. Well, this, this is a, a quite a different little infomercial that Jesus shares here in uh, the end of chapter number eight. And uh, he's, you, you would think, okay, he's trying to get a whole bunch of people to follow him. Uh, no, he really wants to lay out what the real McCoy, the real true disciple, is going to have to deal with. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Uh, just a reminder what the word disciple means. Uh, most of us know, but the word disciple really just simply means follower of Jesus Christ. Um, not to be confused necessarily with the word Christian here, because He's taking those who are already believers and, and, and saying, here's what real, true, the real McCoy disciple is going to need to deal with. Now, he starts here in, in verse number 34, and uh, he includes this word also in verse number 35 and verse number 38. It's uh, the first word of, uh, of, of the words of Christ here in verse 34, where he says the word, whosoever, whosoever. In other words, he's saying, look, anyone and anyone can indeed be a disciple, a true disciple of Christ. You say, well, I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. I can't be a disciple. Oh, whosoever, actually. Uh, whosoever will do these things can be my disciple. Well, I didn't come from a, uh, I came from a broken home. I can't be a disciple. No, whosoever. Well, I came from a pretty poor home and, and I can't, no whosoever. Well, I got saved late in life, and, and I can't be a... No, whosoever. Well, I'm just a teenager. I can't be whosoever. Um, see, whoever is in this room, if you're a whosoever, then you can be a disciple, and you can be a true disciple. And of course, I want to encourage you, and I believe the Lord wants to encourage all of us this morning to be true disciples, to be true followers of Christ. But as we go through this little infomercial, this little brochure uh, for being a disciple, it, it's not what you may expect. Um, it's, it's not exactly the most attractive of offers out there that this world has to offer. But it's what true discipleship looks like. And so uh, let's notice here, uh, first of all, that Jesus points out the price of discipleship. He, he points out the price of discipleship. In verse 34, uh, he goes and starts with this, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, up until this time, people following Christ may have thought that being a disciple was a pretty exciting life. I mean, getting to be around Jesus, who was performing all of these miracles and being part of all the entertainment, that must have been a pretty exciting life. Kind of like being in the circus, you know, uh, traveling around and doing all these amazing shows and, and seeing everybody going, woo, wah. This must be the life, being a disciple. When Jesus says, look, that's not what discipleship is. True discipleship comes at a cost, and there is a price to be paid for being a disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ. What are those 
What is that cost? What is that price of discipleship? Well, discipleship is going to require some things. First of all, it's going to require a decision. You don't just, like, happen to be a disciple. It's not something that you accidentally go wake up one morning and go, oh, I'm a disciple of Christ. It requires a decision. It requires a, a deliberate, intentional decision to follow him. Here it says, whosoever will come after me. Whosoever will decide and desire and resolve to determine to come after me. This is a deliberate choice. A determined resolve to follow Christ. So my question is, where are the Christians in this room at Cornerstone Baptist Church who will decide and resolve to follow the Lord come what may? Say, I'll do so just so long as it, again, doesn't push me out of my comfort zone because I sure like my comfort zone, don't we all? I mean, we, we, uh, we went to the couples retreat um, a couple days ago, and uh, Friday, Saturday. In fact, I meant to show that picture. Let's go ahead and show that picture if you can find it real quick, brother. There's the picture of the couples who went to the couples retreat, and uh, we had a blessed time. It was, it was awesome, and uh, everybody who's married couple needs to go next year, period, okay? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll let you know about it as we get closer, okay? I, I didn't mean to make this sermon uh, an announcement time, but I did forget to do that. While we were at the, um, at the couple's retreat, uh, we had a nice room. I mean, it was like a one-bedroom townhome. I mean, it had a full-on kitchen. Uh, sorry for those who stayed at the chateau. I mean, we had a full-on kitchen. I mean, we had it all. It was nice. And the bed, it was nice, but it wasn't home. You know what I mean. I mean, it was like a nice mattress, but... But my wife and I have kind of become a little bit of mattress snobs. And so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't our mattress, you know. And so we get home and it's like, okay, I'm back in my comfort zone. And I like it. Um, we all like to be comfortable. And we, we spend money and we, we, we go to great lengths to make sure that our lives are comfortable. And yet um, here uh, Jesus is saying, look, you've got to make a decision that you're going to serve me and follow me no matter what, even if it means not being comfortable. So the price of discipleship. And so as Jesus here goes and says, hey, I've got an infomercial here. Here's what a real McCoy, a true disciple looks like. Well, it's going to require a decision. And, uh, I, and a decision, you say, well, I'm still waiting and I'll, I'll make a decision on that someday. Well, you have made a decision to not do it. And so here it requires a decision. Whosoever will come after me. I'm hoping that all of us today will decide that we will come after the Lord um, as a result of this uh, time together. So it requires a decision, but then it also requires denial. Oh, boy. Is getting a little more, a little less and less attractive as time goes on, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, verse number 34 again, whosoever will come after me and let him deny himself. Now, no is a hard word to say, but you know who's the hardest person to say no to? Yourself. Um, how many of you have watched any part of the Olympics, would you raise your hand? Okay. So most of us have seen a little bit. Uh, I've been at restaurants where they're showing curling. <laughs> I'd like to get into that one day, but I don't know. I have a hard time with that. I'd rather get a stick and a puck and hit that around. That's my idea of uh, a good sport. Anyway, um, the Olympics, as you all know, Olympians don't just accidentally get there. Talent is wonderful um, and necessary in order to make the Olympic team and to uh, win a medal. But uh, what really is required is tremendous denial of self. Yeah. These, these individuals have to say no to themselves. When, when everyone's going out to McDonald's afterwards, well, they're going to have to say no to that. Uh, when everyone else is like going through the, uh, the, the, the church potluck, 
with all the desserts, they're going, you know what? I'm going to just look and see that those would be nice, but I'm going to say no. Because they know that in order for them to get to that point where they can be effective in their sport, they're going to have to say no. They're going to have to say no to some things in their lives. Well, um, here as believers, we're called to say no to ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, Paul says this. In uh, verse number 24, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And he said, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. He's saying everyone that's trying to become the best in their sport, they're temperate in everything. They learn to say no to some things in order to say yes to being the best in their sport. He says, Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. They're going to do it to try to get this medal. And I was... Uh, thinking about this, back in California, when we served in that church there, uh, for a season, there was a couple in that church who both had participated in the Olympics. One was a wrestler, and the other one was a cyclist. And uh, the cyclist had actually earned, I believe, a silver medal in one of the events. And so there was an Olympic medalist who was in our church. And that was kind of cool, you know. Um, but and, and, and I'm not trying to say that it's not neat, but it's, it's very temporal. I mean, eventually that, that metal's going to fade and, and, and dissolve. And one day, according to the Bible, it's going to melt with fervent heat. So they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. They, they work so hard in order to just get that one little metal. And uh, I've been told that it's not actually pure uh, gold or pure silver, that it's uh, a mixture. And they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So, he's, so Paul says, I therefore so run, not as, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I have to say no to myself. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So look, if we're going to be a true disciple, we're going to have to learn to say no to ourselves. We're going to have to say no to our desires. We're going to have to learn to say no to our plans, our will, all in order to say yes to the Lord's desires and the Lord's plans and the Lord's will for my life. Many of us want to hold on to the things in our lives, and we're not willing to say no to them. We want to hold on to Things like entertainment, like don't tell me that I can't watch or listen to that. We want to hold on to our activities and, and don't, don't tell me I have to give that up in order to serve the Lord, to be a real follower of Christ. You know, we want to hold on to all these things in our lives, even, uh, I mean, you, you name it, friends, our, our schedule. What are, are you willing to give some of that up? Are you willing to deny yourself of those things in order to be a true disciple? The Lord says, if you're going to be a true disciple, you're going to have to learn how to deny yourself. And we can't effectively say yes to the Lord without saying no to ourselves, because no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. We need to be reminded of that, that true discipleship is going to require some denial, but it's also going to require, oh boy, this is a good one. This is really going to get a lot of people to sign up for discipleship. It's going to require death. I mean, but wait, there's more. It may even cost you your life, is what Jesus says here in verse 34. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. You say, well, I wear a cross around my neck. And so I'm bearing my cross. I'm carrying my cross. Oh, my friend, it's far more than just a little symbol. And some of us might say, well, I, I have a cross to bear and... Uh, you know, it's a trial or tribulation, a burden. 
you know, um, a mother-in-law, you know. Um, that's, that's, my, that's my burden that I have to bear, and that's the cross that I have to carry. No. I love my mother-in-law, and my mother-in-law's great sister is here, and so that's why I put that in there. <laughs> Anna, Anna Lane is here today, and I appreciate her being here. I love my mother-in-law. She's a blessing. But you, 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 and a lot of people do, like, oh, my physical hardship that I'm dealing with, that's my cross that I have to bear. And I get what you're saying on that, but, but we need to remember that really the cross is an instrument of death. It's where people were crucified. It was an excruciating way to die. And of course, Jesus died on the cross for us, but he says, you need to carry your own cross and take up your cross. So taking up our cross doesn't only involve bearing burdens. It also involves dying to ourselves. And the words of Christ here in this verse are are calling us to lives of self-denial. They're calling us to lives of surrender and suffering and even tremendous sacrifice should the Lord require it. And sometimes he has in past. And it could be that in our lifetime, he may require it in ours. Will you take up your cross? So again, this infomercial is sounding less and less attractive to those of us uh, who are used to hearing all the positive aspects and the features. Uh, Requiring a decision? Okay, I can probably deal with that one. Requiring denial? Not, not, as, not as attractive. Requiring death? Yeah, I'm out of here. Where's the door? Let me change the channel. I don't like this infomercial anymore. Problem is I'm not on TV, so <laughs> you can't change the channel on me. <laughs> Those watching online, don't change the channel. Okay. <laughs> so it requires death, but then fourthly, it requires devotion. It requires devotion. At the end of this verse, verse 34, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, we talked about it at the beginning of the service. We're good and kosher to follow the Lord so long as he leads us into a promotion. So long as he leads us into more blessings. The moment those blessings start disappearing and the moment it starts getting hot, the moment uh, it starts to get uncomfortable, then we go, "Uh, Lord, uh, this isn't where you're supposed to lead me. But that song that we sang, I will follow, follow all the way. It requires devotion. A true discipleship requires a devotion to follow him, come what may, to be faithful in the good times and in the difficult times. A reminder again, our our theme for 2022 here at Cornerstone is to continue, to be faithful. Uh, when, when, When things are going well, when it's easy to be faithful, and when it's not easy to be faithful. When it's 70 degrees outside and no wind, that you're going to be found faithful here at church. And we haven't found many of those days recently, although today I think is one of those days. It's going to be a pretty nice day today. But uh, Wednesday night, if the roads are good, it's not going to be 70 degrees on Wednesday night. Are you going to be found faithful? Are you going to be faithful uh, when uh, everybody is feeling great and and, uh, happy and and up for church on time? Or are you going to be found faithful when it's not as easy to get up and get going? It's been a busy week. It sure be nice to just stay home. There's been many... uh, Weekend like that where my wife and I were like, you know, if there was ever a Sunday (laughs) to just kind of hang back at home, this could be it. Well, we get up and go anyway. And I want to encourage you to do the same and to be faithful, come what may. Uh, Vance Havner said this, a wife, or I guess we could even say a husband too, who is 85% faithful is not faithful at all. There is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ, Havner said. I read a story. I know that this is a little sensitive because we are um, 
potentially on the brink of uh, war uh, there in Ukraine. But uh, back at uh, D-Day, uh, there's a story from, from back in those days that really illustrate in, in a powerful way this idea of being faithful and devoted uh, no matter what. A Lieutenant Colonel Terence Otway, he was the commander of the 9th Parachute Battalion of the British 6th Airborne Division. He had an assignment to destroy the four powerful guns of a coastal battery in Merville overlooking Sword Beach. If the 9th could not complete the task on time, naval gunfire would try. And the bombardment was to begin at 5.30 a.m. Or 0530, however you say that in military time. Did I say that right? Oh, 0530? No, 0530. 0530, there we go. Thank you. Um, well, Otway had an elaborate strategy to overrun the guns. But sadly, the plan misfired. An initial air attack was a total failure and then his battalion was dropped across almost 50 miles of the countryside. And of his 700-man battalion, Otway could only find 150 soldiers of the 700. Nevertheless, the men improvised brilliant, brilliantly. They cut gaps through the outer barricade of the gun battery with wire cutters. And one group cleared a path through the minefields, crawling on hands and knees while feeling for tripwires and prodding the ground ahead with bayonets. And now they waited the order to attack. Otway knew casualties would be high, but the guns had to be silenced. There was a job to do. Everybody in, he yelled. We're going to take this bloody battery. Of course, I don't think that that's the proper word to use, but that's what he said. And, the, and in they went. Red flares burst over their heads and machine gun fire poured out to meet them. Through the deadly barrage, the paratroopers crawled, ran, dropped, and ran some more. Mines exploded. There were yells and screams and the flash of grenades as paratroopers piled into the trenches and fought hand-to-hand -hand with the enemy. Germans eventually began surrendering. Lieutenant Michael Dowling and his men knocked out the four guns they were supposed to. Then Dowling found Otway. He stood before his colonel, his right hand holding the left side of his chest. Battery taken as ordered, sir, Dowling declared. The battle had lasted just 15 minutes. Otway fired a yellow flare, the success signal, a quarter of an hour before the naval bombardment was to start. Moments later, Otway found Dowling's lifeless body. He had been dying at the time he made his report. You see, he was devoted to a cause. And if he was willing to do that for that type of a cause, the Lord is calling us to follow him for a greater cause. May the Lord help us to have a resolve and a devotion that, look, it's going to take a lot more than just a look. You know, that person looked at me funny at church, so I'm just going to be a little irritated and get bitter and maybe just stop coming. No, it's going to take a lot more than that for me to be, to bail. I'm going to be devoted. So here he goes and says, and Jesus does, that, hey, this discipleship is going to require a decision. It's going to require denial. It's going to require uh, death and even uh, devotion. Not exactly the most attractive points for a brochure on discipleship. Come follow me and be prepared to pay the highest price ever. But that is what Jesus says. Someone might say, well, don't we want more disciples? The answer is yes. But, but remember, God doesn't need a majority. Remember how he defeated the Midianite army of 135,000 men with just 301 solid, sold-out men who were totally committed to follow the Lord? That's all he needed. And then God was able to use just 12 men who were truly devoted disciples to turn the world upside down. We don't need to have a large church 
to make an eternal impact in Moore, Oklahoma. We just need to be truly devoted to Christ. We need to have a church full of true disciples. Phillips Brooks said this, it doesn't take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men. I read a quote this week that said, following Christ costs more than anything. Except for not following him. That costs more. And we're going to see that in the next verse, which leads us to secondly here, not only the price of discipleship, but let's look at the paradox of discipleship. Verse number 35 I'm sorry, yeah, verse 35, Jesus says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. The Bible is full of paradoxes, seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statements. Here's a couple examples. In, in Matthew 23, 11, Jesus said, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Mark 9, 35, Jesus said, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Uh, that goes against, that's, that's an absurd statement, and yet that's what Jesus said. Uh, other ones include, we live by dying, we conquer by yielding, we find rest under a yoke, we reign by serving, we are made great by becoming small, we are exalted when we are humble, we become wise by being fools for Christ's sake, we are made free by becoming bondservants. We gain strength when we are weak, and we triumph through defeat. And here we have another one. Whosoever will save his life is going to lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Now imagine, and, and he goes here in verse number 36 and says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I was thinking if, if we could just hear from someone who had, who had all the world had to offer, if we could just have someone who kind of experienced the pinnacle of what this world has to offer and, and have him come and, and give a testimony today, that would be powerful. And uh, after kind of going through all my contacts, I actually found a person that that's the case. And I invited him to come today to give a testimony. And so at this time, I would like to invite to the platform Mr. Solomon to share his testimony. And so Solomon, the floor is yours. So Solomon, hello, my name is Solomon. <laughs> yeah, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So, yeah, I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained within me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. But, friends, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that had, I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. That's my testimony. Well, thank you, Solomon. And Solomon would say, no, actually, I'm not done yet. He would say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
See, Solomon did have everything this world had to offer. He, you could say, gained the whole world. And you know what? He looked at it and said it was empty. Bane. Vexation of spirit. But you know what? We still chase it, don't we? We still want the things that this world have to offer, and we're going to come to the same conclusion once we get there that Solomon did. I read about uh, a man by the name of George Beverly Shea. He was 23 years old, and he was a tremendously talented singer with a ton of potential. And he came to a point in his life where he had a very difficult decision to make. He was offered a job in New York City, a secular singing position there with a tremendously high salary and obviously fame to go along with it. Or he could continue singing in churches and for Christian radio programs. What would he do? Well, while sitting at the family piano one early Sunday morning, he started to prepare a special hymn for the Sunday service. And on the piano, he found a poem by Mrs. Ray F. Miller. And he immediately began to compose the music for the poem and used that song that morning in his father's church service. He also used those words to direct his life and has shared his song with audiences around the world. What was the song? The song goes like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Oh, I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Why? Because he's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain. Or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Another individual by the name of C.T. Studd, the famous English cricketer. Of course, we don't really play cricket here in America much. Uh, we're more into football baseball, basketball, and the greatest sport of all time, hockey, in my not-so-humble opinion. But uh, he was a famous cricketer and member of the English, the ele English 11 cricket team. Well, he ended up giving away his vast wealth and became a, a missionary. And his slogan was, C.T. Studd's slogan was, If Jesus Christ be God, and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So here's the paradox. You can try to keep this world and try to gain this whole world, but what does it profit if you do that and you end up losing your own soul? There is no profit. It's a complete waste. Sure, you enjoyed this life, but this life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to make that decision today. That's the most important decision of all time. Make that decision today. So we see the paradox of discipleship. Thirdly, let's look at the pressure of discipleship. Verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. When he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels, there is a tremendous pressure to not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus here. A, a real disciple understands that pressure and isn't ashamed. I'll never forget when uh, I was in Bible college. Uh, my friend and I uh, went to, as I mentioned, hockey, the greatest sport ever. If nothing else, it is the coolest sport ever because they play on ice. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Okay. Uh, no, we went to uh, a hockey game. He had tickets, and he said, hey, I got two tickets uh, from my boss. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Didn't take me long. 
Well, it was a Los Angeles Kings game. I don't remember who they were playing that night, but I didn't have a Los Angeles Kings jersey. I had a different jersey. I had a Hartford Whalers jersey. I had this jersey. And I thought, this would just be fun to wear. And so I put this on, and I wore this jersey. Well, the Los Angeles Kings have a mascot, like most professional sports do. And uh, the name of the mascot is Kingston. Okay, so Judd and Jen, if you can hear me, um, their, uh, their, their uh, mascot was named after your son. I think that's what they did. Um, anyway, Kingston would look like a lion because it was a king, king of the jungle, you know, and they made him a lion. And, uh, and he just went around the stadium, you know, and enjoying razzing people and, you know, encouraging people to cheer and all that stuff. Well, he ended up in our section. And then he, he looked at my jersey and he was like, and they don't talk, you know, but he was pointing and he was like, to the crowd that was watching him, he was looking, pointing at me like, what is this idiot doing wearing this Hartford Whalers jersey to a Los Angeles Kings game? That's what he was trying to convey. And so he comes over to me, and he tries to uh, take this off and, you know, try to rip it off me. And I was like, no, no. And it was all funny. Um, but as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? Here I am, not ashamed to be a Hartford Whalers fan. Now, at that point in time, I don't even think the Hartford Whalers were still a team. And if, I think, actually, they were still a team, but they were pretty horrible. They, they weren't, and I, I kind of have a knack for picking not great teams. No amens from the audience on that one. Okay. There's a couple people I'm worried about who are going to get a revival right now. <laughs> uh, but I was sitting there going, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be a Hartford Whalers fan. But as we think about verse 38 here, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me. Here's a sad fact. I believe that many of us or many Christians are more proud of the sports team than we are of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't mind letting everyone know who we root for, but few people know that we belong to Jesus. I don't mind walking around wearing this, but when it comes to letting people know that I am a believer in Christ, well, that's a different story. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul challenged his son in the faith, Timothy. He said, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then he said, be, thou, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Let's not be ashamed. Because here he says, one day he's coming back in great glory. When he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels, that's going to be some scene when the Lord comes back. And he said, if you're ashamed, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. Now, what does that exactly mean? How will this exactly look? I, I don't really know. Jesus doesn't exactly spell it out, uh, what this totally means as far as how, how, how this is going to, what, what the actual consequence is going to be, but I'd rather not find out personally. And I really would encourage you not to find out personally either. And so I want to encourage us to not be ashamed of him when we're out and about, it's easy to be bold in our witness when we're inside these walls because we're all believers. It's another thing when we go to work tomorrow. It's another thing when you guys go to school tomorrow. Okay, well, you're like, maybe I'm not going to school because it's President's Day. So, <laughs> okay, whenever you're in school, whenever you're out and about with the friends and family and, and uh, the community and your neighbors, do they know you are a believer or are you like... Um, yeah, I'll take this off because that's a little embarrassing to be wearing that around. We're pretty bold to let people know kind of 
who our favorite celebrities is and, and our favorite sports teams, but are we bold enough to let people know who we belong to and who is our Lord and Savior? Let's not be ashamed. One more story and then we'll be done. In 1904, a man by the name of William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. And William was an heir to the Borden family fortune. And uh, since that was the case, he was already wealthy at a very young age. Consider this, for his high school graduation present, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. And as the young man traveled throughout Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, God began to do a work, and he began to have a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill William Borden wrote home about his desire to become a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. I mean, you've got all that money. You can do so many great things with it. A story often associated with Borden says that in, that, in response to that friend saying he was throwing himself away as a missionary, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. Well, even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look just like one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because uh, of this settled purpose and consecration. Of course, back in those days, Yale wasn't what it, Yale is today. Yale was a Bible college preparing men for the ministry. Well, during his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. The entry simply said, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Oh, doesn't that sound a little bit like what we're looking at here in this passage? Well, Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke in a convocation about the student's need of having a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. Surveying the Yale faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented what he saw as the end result of an empty humanistic philosophy, moral weaknesses, and sin-ruined lives. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. And one of his friends described how it began. It was, it was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. Cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceeded to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. And by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Wow. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. And once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said of him, he certainly was one of the strangest, strongest, not strangest, strongest characters I have ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. And although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society 
Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. And it has been reported that in his Bible, Bill Borden wrote two more words. He already wrote no reserves. Now he wrote these words, no retreats. William Borden went off to do graduate school and graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. And while there, sadly, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the United States, the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. And a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Was Borden's untimely death a, a complete waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he is reported to have written, no regrets. May the Lord help us all choose to be true disciples of him. But it will only be so if we truly say no reserves and no retreats. I'm not going to call it quits. I'm going to follow him come what may. And when we do, we'll look back and say, no regrets. There was no regrets. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the time today in your word. As we consider this idea of true discipleship that you call us to. Lord, you didn't mince words. You didn't try to manipulate us into becoming true disciples. You told us what it was going to cost. Lord, help us to be willing to pay that price. Help us to be like Brother Borden, who was willing to give up all this world had to offer in order to serve you, in order to get the gospel out. Help us, Lord, to have that mentality and perspective. Help us, Lord, to not have any reserves and say, I'll serve you so long as this. Help us, Lord, to give you a blank piece of paper and say, I'll serve you no matter what you write on this paper. Help us, Lord, to uh, not ever retreat and not ever to give up. And we know, Lord, when we do, we'll look back and, and have zero regrets. Lord, the only time I have regret is when I failed to do that. And I failed to be a, a true disciple. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to, today to make that decision that you call us to. A decision to deny, a decision to death, and a decision of devotion. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask Miss Pat to begin playing. And as she does, I want to invite you to have a time of...